Hello, everyone. Brian McClintock here. You're listening to The Thin Green Line, which are episodes of the Viticol podcast dealing exclusively with environmental issues surrounding the wine world. You can find those under the TTGL abbreviation in our podcast history. You can't change things by just saying, I want to remove this or I want to add that. You have to change things at, at the very core of what your daily routines are. And so the only chance to, the biggest way to be able to like make those changes and make that input is to fall in love with the outcome, is to fall in love with what that life feels like, what that life tastes like, with what those human interactions are like in that life. And then it becomes easy, you know? Like then you want it. I don't even know how to describe Hayu or Nate. There's some wizardry going on in this place. First of all, you're in the Columbia Gorge in Oregon, which is an area not known for wine production. And Nate's farm is kind of defies description. It's a regenerative farm with grasses left year-round, perennials, incredible amount of diversity. It's raw, it's wild, it's untamed. I mean, one way to think about it is just, it's just trying to nut, like, nudge the system as close as possible to a wild system. And it isn't a wild system, but to try to make agriculture just look a little bit more like nature. I think the best way to experience Hayu is to actually go there. And and my advice would be in the late spring, early summer before harvest, when there's actually length to the day. And often you'll get a garden tour and a vineyard walk and a meal paired with Hayu wines. And almost everything in that meal will be from the farm. There's zero waste, it's a closed loop system. And Chef Jason is an incredible cook. Often Nate is working service for you with his Rasputin-esque long beard. Anything you're going to consume, the actual act of cooking or the act of making wine Mm. begins in the field. Nate, being a master sommelier and having worked in some of the greatest restaurants in the world, the French Laundry and Frosco, really utilizes his hospitality. One of the basic through lines of our conversation is this philosophical aspect that really defines Nate and his partner China's existence. Typically, people have a lot of hang-ups in terms of executing things. And they feel like they have to sort of trial things in kind of infinite ways. And again, they're chasing this sort of certainty thing. Like they, they think that they need to know what the outcome's going to be. And until they know the outcome and until they know exactly how things are going to go down, they can't do it. Imagine for a second if in your life you didn't care what the outcome is. Imagine for a second if the only outcome that you cared about was uncertainty. If that were the case, you would never be disappointed because that is life. And if that really defined your thinking, it really defined your ideas for anything in life, who is Mr. Right, who is Mrs. Right, What business do I want to do? What career path do I want to take? If that philosophy permeates your thinking, there's no limit to what you're willing to do. And Nate is truly a fearless person. And what does that look like? I mean, how many cuvées did you uh, ferment in 2018? I mean, so many. It's like, I mean, well (laughs) over 75. I mean, it looks like a lot of bubbling potions in liquid grape form. And the styles are so diverse. You'll have cider over here and one of the best ciders in the world you'll have a skin contact wine you'll have pink orange white red uh pet nat every different type of style you could possibly imagine is put in bottle for the technical people out there this is a very technical podcast it goes deep into his process but really Hayu is an art installation uh, for the future and an example of how someone might live in these times. I always feel like in general, like whatever your instinct is, as like a modern human being, you should probably do the opposite. We talk deep about regenerative practices and the ruminants that are there on his farm, cows, pigs, chickens, all of it. It's like pretty much like old McDonald had a farm, right? And then we get into uh, very early on in the conversation, kind of how Nate works with flaws because this is a very interesting topic in natural wine world Um, and what he has to say might surprise you so let's pick that up right now 
cells on different sides of a line nobody drew. You can taste a wine that you kind of might assume is going to be really challenging for a certain percentage of the population. But for me, as long as the wine is still like vibrating and alive, it doesn't really matter. I would consider it a valid expression things. And so there's maybe like in the whole cellar down there, there are like two or three barrels where the life has left them. That's, it's so rare. But there's a whole other set of things that I would consider to be extremely challenging. But oftentimes those end up being, for those barrels that are, that are flirting with that line or, or let's say for our, our, on their way to hospice potentially, are there things that you can do naturally to in, maybe encourage resuscitation or blend, no, so blend them with another so barrel? I think, yeah, or, I think that yeah. what the, the major thing you can do yeah. is sort of like positive feedback for the wine. And so right. you basically don't want to let the wine know that you think it has a problem. I think that the way you actually do lose wines is by intervening in that situation. And so like people, when they're like restarting fermentations and engaged in those kind of activities... That's where you get these wines in the world that really are truly dead, you know, and destroyed. And so, like, it's like when people freak out that their fermentation isn't going fast enough or that they think it's stopped or that all these things are happening. It's at those interventions, you know, when the the wine becomes truly lost after that intervention. Have you actually seen that change in use in starting Hayu? Or have you always... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, we've did, seen you come in, did you we've come seen in with things. that knowledge? No, it's definitely something that's like every year we get more and more sort of comfortable with that. But I mean, the, I mean, I always look at like 15, which was the first vintage when we took over the additional acreage. And we have a number of 15s, whites and reds still in barrel. The whites took well over a year, two years to ferment. And we've never tried, we would never even attempt to like restart a fermentation and things like that. But there's certainly like moments when we'd put things in warmer places or outside or, you know, stirring a white that had kind of been, and invariably those things like have negative impacts on the wine. It's not positive impacts. I always feel like in general, like whatever your instinct is, as like a modern human being, you should probably do the opposite. When did this idea start to develop for you? This one thought? I mean, probably like when I was in high school or something. Okay. How? In what circumstances? I was always reading like a lot of um, philosophy and stuff. Well, that's, yeah, that's um, what every high school yeah. student does. They read philosophy. Yeah, I read philosophy. <laughs> so there's a lot of like, where are you? Soren Kierkegaard, and there's a lot of like ideas about uncertainty and the sort of things that are possible in that kind of state. And so I think like a lot of stuff like emerges. Where are you? You're in Napa? And in Napa, one? yeah. Yeah. So you're born in Napa? No, born in Long Beach, and, but grew up in Napa. Wow. When did you move? Um, like a ki- like little kid. Okay. Yeah. So mostly Napa. Mostly Napa. It's such a strange place in my mind to grow up and then to see you now here and so much of your philosophy and ethos seems so far away than the conventional thoughts and ethos that kind of define Napa Valley in many respects. Yeah. In this, I actually think that this place is really similar to Napa. Like the Hood River Valley of today has more in common with the Napa of 50 years ago than the Napa of today has in common with the Napa of 50 years ago. That's interesting. It's a blue collar orchard, mm-hmm. like growing valley, you know, and, and you don't have any of the commercial like impacts that are associated like with the modern wine industry. Like in California, you don't exist here. And even climate, like climate here is probably we're probably closer to the climate of yesteryear in the Napa Valley than Napa Valley. I mean, you're a fairly young guy. So even growing up in Napa then, there's a giant difference. It's changed. Even the change in the last 20 years, I think, is for sure more than the change in the 20 years before that. So I think the change that you saw in Napa after I left was of a magnitude that, I mean, it's really become a very, very different place. So how does a high school student in Napa just decide they want to read Kierkegaard? Like, where does that come from? I don't know. I was always into reading books. I was always, like, hiding behind the couch and, like, what is, like, stuff on my parents' bookshelf. Okay, and you just grab it. Yeah, you just grab book, you know, board, start reading. So that's where the evolution begins. How did Kierkegaard and whoever else turn into, maybe the wine industry is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that you just draw, like, you're always, 
like drawing connections between, I mean, I'm always inclined to draw connections between all the different things that are sort of happening in my life. And so I was really interested in, in reading certain things. And then also really interested in food and wine. And so you just kind of, make, like the analogies just sort of happen and did, really naturally. did the farming stuff, which whenever we've like sat down at dinners and talked, I, I always try to create a timeline. I'm like, wow, some of these ideas have been like percolating in your head for quite a long time. Did some of the farming ideas even come before the wine or was it simultaneous or was one before the other? No, the, the farming stuff definitely came after the wine. Like I don't, I don't have a, a strong recollection of any important, like or interesting, like farming thoughts right. prior to two thousand. I would say like I first encountered interesting sort of farming stuff when I was working at the French Laundry and just related to how focused that food was on the relationship between different growers. And so it was the first time they sort of had this moment where you're like eating something and imagining where it came from, who grew it and what it was like there, whether or not it was, you know, what's the life of these three cows like in Vermont to like provide this butter or or of Ingrid Bengus, right? Who's like providing, shipping all this lobster out to the restaurant, like FedEx, like, like what's her life like? And, you know, what does it feel to be like in the water there off the coast of Maine or, or going to Peter Jacobson's garden? When, when was Harvesting this? figs or like... Late 90s. Stucky era? Early 2000s, stucky era. But it was really those were like the first moments of sort of... But even then, I really didn't... I wasn't connecting the dots and didn't have any other than having some experiences. I didn't really take it further than that. And it wasn't until I was at Roncavon Yemet working in the agronomist there, this guy Andrea Pitana. Basically, just you just flat out said, like, if you want to learn, if you want to really know anything about, about food and wine, you should study farming first. You're wasting your time with all the stuff in the cellar. And like, you really should be farming. That was in 2007 okay. is when this happened. And so I'd worked just one vintage in, in Napa. I was working with Thomas Brown up at Outpost and some of like the Rivers Marie wines and like that sort of stuff. And that was like strictly a cellar experience. But then once I got to Italy, it was much more mixed into working in the vineyard, working in the cellar. There was, a, you know, like a little bit of like small scale, like sort of farm kind of scene going on. And at Frosca, we had been really focused on working with local farmers. So there was a bit of interaction there, but again, not in a really substantive way. How influential was Bobby? I mean, I think just insofar as like Bobby definitely was very clear to him that if you wanted to make great food, that farming mattered. I think at that like moment we were opening Frosca, like that idea was clearer to him than it was to Lachlan and I. And listen, we were like 24 years old, 23 years old. And so I don't think it was unusual that we didn't, you know, totally have like a, a complete grasp. But yeah, so the potential, like kind of understanding the potential of that like sort of grows from there when you sort of understand that anything you're going to consume, the actual act of cooking or the act of making wine mm -hmm. begins in the field. You would say like kind of the first musings of what you've built today here started, let's say in Northeastern Italy. Yeah, the first like concrete ideas of like a... Of, of it sort of coalescing around like a bit of a mission where it was like, if you really want to continue down this path, all the focus has to be on the farming. You, that's essentially what the activity is. And if you're not doing that activity, you're actually not, you're really not engaging in producing food and making wine. So after that experience working harvest, did you just go behind your parents' couch again and like read a bunch of farming books yeah, so, and go deep? Yeah. So, so China and I moved back to Boulder from Italy and... We did. We started reading a lot of books on farming and working on local farms in Boulder. So we had a lot of friends who had farms and so we were just staging like at different places, like just helping out. And yeah, reading a lot of like everything from like Kalumela to Elliot Coleman. Like so like, you know, sort of a range. And, and I would say that most of it was like a little like felt a little dull and a little dry and sort of reading it. The epiphanies were like, sort of few and far between and, and it was hard to draw the connections between sort of what I got excited about with certain like kind of taste experiences and and sort of the practices that were being described in these books until we got to Fukuoka. Okay. And then read the One Straw Revolution and we got like a bootleg copy from India off eBay because it wasn't in print at this point. And, and that was the first 
time I read, and we read like you know Stein, a bunch of Steiner stuff. Mm, like it's interesting, you know, interesting, like a tool for sure. But reading the Fukuoka was the first time where like the light went off. You're like, oh yeah, this is this makes way more sense. This is what it's. But and then that opened up this horde, whole door of permaculture. And the thing to understand about like Fukuoka is that it's not a, um, it's like an inspirational text. It's not a practical manual or description of like how to do these things. It's more like something to meditate on. You sort of meditate upon the words and like the vision. You think about the farm would be like, and it's and it's inspiring, right? And it sort of like sets the course. But then, so like, what specific aspects? Yeah. So like relationship to nature, reconnection. There are bo- like there are books that. So when you start to get into Sepp Holzer and Jeff Lott and, and like Bill Mollison mm-hmm. and they're it sort of opens up to this realm of like permaculture, how to work with animals in a way that resembles more of like a natural environment or to to begin to work with water in a more thoughtful way on your property or, you know, how to encourage, you know, rebuild like sort of fungal populations and those sort of things. So like all that, all those things were sort of out there to be discovered. But once we sort of read Fukuoka, it sort of, it was the book that kind of opened the door to being able to see all that stuff. When was that? When did you get that? That was 2000, so that was 2008. So it was 2008 when that that was like sort of happening. And then, and then we were immediately sort of realized that that we just needed to find our own property and do it. Yeah. It just made way more sense just to like find a small piece of land and just get in. And that's what this was about was like, so we just, we began this search. I mean, it's uh, 2008. It's just like hard to even imagine anybody talking about that stuff, especially in the in the wine industry. But were did you reach out to any of these people or no, no, <laughs> no? Uh, I mean, there were, like, there's a lot of information out, you know. And so we we sort of we read the books and then got on our piece of land. And eventually, I mean, so we didn't buy the property until like fall 2010. But we really just sort of hold ourselves up out here and started. Doing things. And that was one of the big things. I think that was one of the big things was feeling really strongly that we needed to pass through this phase of like just thinking about things or talking about things and really be doing things. And and that's been like sort of a this thread that's been with us like the whole time was that it was sort of, it's been, it's incredibly like, I don't know how to describe it. Um, and I don't know why, like why this, why this happened, but there's, Typically, people have a lot of hang-ups in terms of executing things. And they feel like they have to sort of trial things in kind of infinite ways. And again, they're chasing this sort of certainty thing. Like they, they think that they need to know what the outcome's going to be. And until they know the outcome and until they know exactly how things are going to go down, that they can't do it. And for whatever reason, from the, really, from the very beginning, we were really comfortable just trying something and like see, you know, and seeing how it would happen. And, and it's very, um, I think like a more artistic way of sort of being in the world where you're really comfortable sort of laying one vision out on the canvas. And then you don't have to erase or like destroy that canvas. You can just continue to like sort of work over it. Um, although that does condition the kind of things that you do. So you're not um, likely to, like when you're working that way, you, it does engender kind of a gentler way of sort of doing things. So like if you're like planting a vineyard, you're way less likely to to rip it, till it, pull all the trees out, burn them, and sort of build this kind of vision up from scratch. And you're way more likely to look at the field and say like, well, how could we go into this field and make the minimum number of changes, but just sort of like, like kind of rework mm. like the environment. And then constantly make those like sort of subtle adjustments to like push things. And I mean, the other thing I sort of say is like, we're just at the beginning of our journey. We've done a lot of things that, as it turned out, a lot of people have not done and that are really novel and that have worked, but we've so much more to work on. And what the farm looks like now, uh, in 20 years, it'll be unrecognizable like from today. Well, it seems like talking about your seller practices that, you know, the lack of intervention and working towards minimal inputs in the vineyard seems to carry over. Yeah, exactly we thought about philosophical. We thought about that from the beginning. I mean, so like, I mean, from the beginning, like there's certain wines that were really kind of moving and inspirational, and they were definitely at this moment that it was a really difficult period, I think, for the North American wine industry, and it were it was hard to find wines that spoke with a like an extremely clear 
voice about what their identity was and where they were from and a lot of things sort of tasting the same and a lot of things that were like, yeah, not full of energy and like quite flat. And, and then we taste these wines from other parts of the world that were so much more dynamic and full of life and communicating with sort of more articulacy and resolution. And there was always this question, why? Like, why should it be like that? And there's so many, and at the end of the day, it ended up being that you could point out a litany of things. There's a confusion about what is actually causing a wine to taste like a wine does. And people think that because they're making action X in the cellar or doing this in the vineyard, that that's why. And the reality is it's that people's lifestyles inform all these like subtle changes in the way you do things. And those are what make the wine taste like the wine does. And so the only way to like really move the flavor of the wine in a substantive and like sort of meaningful way is, is by focusing on the kind of life you're living. And it's by changing and modulating essentially your lifestyle that that's how you change the wine. Like that's how the wine moves. So, um, so by by changing your lifestyle, you're also kind of changing the, the psychology of your existence. And if you're changing the psychology of your existence, it, it informs the decisions you make or don't make. Yeah, and it's and it's the subconscious. It's these sort of like things that you're not aware of that you're doing are the really important things. So, if, so in general, and this is something I noticed, like as a sommelier, like kind of tasting wine, the winemakers say everyone describes what they're doing. It all sounds the same. It's amazing. You know, we de-stem and that's two pump overs a day. And then we, you know, press it, you know, 21 days and it's a barrel for, you know, 18 months. And like, and the same thing for like the vineyard. And every once in a while, some will have like some like sort of interesting nuance to like sort of share. And then the reality is that every one of those people who they sound so similar in when they describe their process, if you were actually a fly on the wall and was sort of watching, you'd realize, oh, wow, it's like so different. Those differences, they're not something people are aware of because it's the individual, like invisible parts of their identity that cause them to do something one way or like another. Are there like an example of something? Yeah. So, yeah. Like, yeah. So like, I mean, my, one of my favorite enough. stories from like Eddie Simchich and like Slovenia. And so when... When we were, it was a really interesting harvesting like grapes there, and so it was a multi generational sort of process. And so you go out and harvest, um, and it was easy to you know contrast this to like what I had seen in Italy or what I'd seen in like California. But when you went out with a family, so it wasn't a picking, it wasn't like a it wasn't a picking crew of migrant workers either from Eastern Europe or from South America or like wherever. It was the family, and it wasn't. And it was three generations. So it was like the kids and then grandparents and everyone sort of all doing it together. And instead of picking like just in the morning or like at night, they'd kind of go out there with a picnic and they'd pick like all day long. And then when they would come back to the cellar, even then they wouldn't process the grapes right away. They'd come back to the cellar, they'd take a nap and then they'd wake back up and, and the wines would be like sitting in like the sun, like the whole grapes are like sitting in the sun, like at that point, right? And then they would um, wake up and then like barbecue. And so you'd have this like big, long, like crazy barbecue. And then like hours after you finished dinner, everyone would sort of like stumble down to the cellar and like load the press. It wasn't intentional, any of this. This was like sort of completely tied up like in their culture, and they didn't think twice about it. But the same thing like in Napa, where the experience was exactly the opposite, where it was night picking and the grapes arriving at like 6 a.m. And, and where the winemaking team is like totally dissociated from the team that's harvesting the grapes. I think people would like to say that those decisions are driven by science or like... Um, some sort of like very like clear-headed idea of what's going to make the wine better. And the reality, it's people's lives. Like that's um, people's choice to like not live on the property where the grapes are grown mm. or to purchase fruit versus grow it themselves. Like they're sort of like deep, and those have, and, and the impacts in the wine are like enormous. Not, and not good or bad, right? Like just different, like really different. And so we also did have these sort of thoughts that, that the, what we did in the vineyard and what, the way we worked in the cellar should be really consistent, right? And so if, 
you're not like working with the soil and the vineyard, you probably don't want to do a lot of batonage, like in the cellar. Like if you're, or really aggressive, like punch downs, or if you're working without chemicals, like in a vineyard, you maybe don't want to just then add them to the wine, like in the cellar. Right. Just so that the wines had this like force of consistent like vision. I mean, that makes total sense. Because the, the, like, the big thing about wine is like, is like clarity of voice. Like what's exciting about wine is all the different perspectives that can be found in like sort of different glasses of wine and the clarity with which you hear like that voice or the strength of like the signal. And whenever you have a lot of like really contradictory practices happening or when the work is like dissociated when you have one group of people that never talks to another group of people doing one set of tasks mm. involved in the production of a wine. So if you, you know, in the classic example, right, is separating the vineyard team and the cellar team, you're automatically going to have a wine that's disjointed because there's no consistency of vision. It's many voices, but those voices aren't harmonized. It's not like they're like in, you know, in concert. So you gave the Simchich example, which is a very visual example. Are there people whose maybe natural personality is polar opposite of that, who are relentlessly detail-oriented, that still make compelling Yeah, yeah, no, and that's what I was sort of saying. It's that clarity of, like, sort of vision. I think it's a mistake to think that it's, like, some abstract intellectual process that's guiding those decisions. That's not what's happening. Like, it's actually, it's something inherent to people's personalities and sort of what their life looks like. And so, like, when you taste wine for the you know, stories, like this really important part of wine, right? And for a long time, people have been trying to remove the story from the wine. And so there's all these discussions about like, oh, it's like, it's all about just what's in the glass. And that's all you need. It's like what's in this glass and the story is not important. In fact, the story is the most important thing. And people try to talk about terroir and separate it from like sort of cultural factors. Um, and it's missing, you're basically missing like the most important aspect is mm. the human aspect. It's interesting. I, I think about that and then I think about appraising the level of craft with a wine too. And to taste a wine and, and, and you taste by far more wine and you've had so much experience. How do you go about tasting a wine for the first time and saying that is a compelling wine without knowing that history or the people I don't, involved I don't in bringing that voice to the table? I don't think you can ever know. Like, I, I think that, and I think that this is like, part of this is just being like realistic and honest with ourselves mm -hmm. as tasters. And as people, like, listen, like, sometimes people talk about, like, they talk about wines as if they know them. And honestly, like, unless you're the farmer winemaker that's tasted that wine thousands of times from its birth mm -hmm. to its potential, like, death, you don't know the wine. Like, the wines are, they're changing, like, all the time. And so when you have this wine and you have an experience of it, to presume without Contest. going to the place, meeting the people, and then having that wine in many also different contexts to presume, you know, that you know it, it as ridi totally ridiculous. And like people going around and like speaking with like certainty about wines. It's just not what wine's about. What wine's about is having that experience and the sense of kind of wonder and curiosity that it engenders. And sometimes like, and sometimes about the pleasure that it creates or sometimes mm -hmm. like the dissonance. Like sometimes, sometimes you have a wine and it causes like sort of visceral like disgust. <laughs> um, that's what it's about is about having those experiences and then kind of seeing where that leads you. Well, it's fascinating to me because I, in my time getting to know you over the years, and it took us like you know, three years maybe before we even decided to do a, a cuvee together, is you have one of the broadest palettes I've ever seen. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way at all because you have a very discriminating palette at the same time. But I think you connect to a lot of different people's stories, let's say. And there is a wide swath of wines that you connect to. Yeah. And, and that's the interesting part of wine. In this sort of classic, um, sort of sommelier like driven example, right, this right. is what is so exciting about like being in the restaurant at the French Laundry, like in that moment. And this idea of you walk up to the table and you ask someone sort of what, what they love to drink. And the sort of dialogue emerges about mm -hmm. 
not just what they love to drink, but like what kind of evening they're having and where they're at, like in the moment. And then you sort of reach back into your mind and try to get inside that person's head. And then you bring them a bottle of wine. That is for sure not exactly the thing like that they maybe had in their mind, but maybe connects with that in like a really like dynamic wine and connects what they were interested in with what's going to happen with the food and what's happening you know, yeah. in the general restaurant, like in that moment, and they then have this like really moving experience. Mm-hmm. That's a special like kind of communication. But in order to be able to do that, you need to have had a really broad array of experiences to be able to connect with everyone. And I certainly think there's a place for people and wine bars or restaurants or shops or whatever with a really narrow viewpoint, because that can be powerful like too. Um, but there's there's something really special about like wine is this like in this sort of ethical um, sort of like communicative like context and there's definitely something diversity is like the most important part of that. Yeah, well I see it. I mean, how many cuvées did you uh, ferment in 2018? I mean, so many. It's like I mean, well <laughs> over 75. <laughs> It's like I, people ask me about you who haven't. Like, what is it? What is it like? And I'm like, it's, it's kind of like a Ganavas situation. For those of you who don't know, Ganavas is a producer in the Jura with like this innumerable amount of cuvées. But within the Ganavas regime, there's a fairly consistent through line that is definitely more narrow than you. I think what's most interesting about that is that is to sort of understand that a single site has all of those potentials inside itself, but they're all just, they're facets of the same thing. That's what's so incredible about it is that there are all these lenses through which you can sort of view a place and sort of people's work on it. And the more of those doors that you open, portals that you have available to you, the more you understand, potentially understand the place, Mm -hmm. Um, not less. And the more people also that you can connect that place to. For us, it was really interesting. Like when we have sort of guests come to the winery, no one will like every wine. And some people will find certain wines repellent. But there will be one thing for everyone. 100%. That's like really exciting. And also with like food and seasons and like all those things. Like there's, you know, all the different moments of the year and all the different things you can right. drink a wine with and you have so many like you know living your life through like whatever the change of the signs of the zodiac as you like sort of roll through the year and if people ask me why why all these cuvées and why all these different styles I'm like it's absolutely in my experience of knowing you it's just exactly your authentic voice and the farm is all part of that yeah it doesn't there's not like a a line like sort of anywhere and, and a lot of it is like I think a lot of it too is like about I think exploration and about it just the further you get into it, you don't I don't really experience like one wine, like different wines being better than one another, mm. but just like all these different voices and sort of just being curious about what one way yeah. of being with a particular piece of land will reveal. How would you even describe your farming philosophy? Um, I mean, impartially I like to just I like to sort of mention that it's an old-fashioned polycultural farm. In, in many ways, insofar as we're not specialized. And so, um, so we raise animals and there's garden and there's orchard and there's vines, you know, and then there's, you know, elements of pasture and forest. And that it's sort of a, and that, that used to be farms were all like that. And it's a relatively recent that we've had farms that just do sort of one of those things, not the other. I mean, one way to think about it is just, it's just trying to, not like nudge the system as close as possible to a wild system. And it isn't a wild system, but to try to make agriculture just look a little bit more like nature. Um, and there are a bunch of things that were like really inspiring in that regard. Certainly like sort of accounts of, like in permaculture, they'll call it sort of zone four permaculture. And it's this area where natural boundaries meet cultivated boundaries. And those areas are particularly like rich in life, but they're areas where you sort of let, you have less control. You sort of let things go more, but you try to prop things up like where you can. And, and 
Native American ways of relating to land are often described as being this way and, and sort of accounts of what European settlers saw when they first came to North America um, are pretty inspirational in terms of like trying to understand what that kind of setting could be like. Like I find like ciders, the Aaron Burr ciders to be like particularly like inspirational and everything related to how we are trying to integrate more foraged kind of things into our food. I think that there are flavors and health benefits and all these things that are possible when you're working in that kind of, or not working um, in that way, like than in others. And so when you have, I think, plants that are like in this really coddled atmosphere, I think they often can produce, you know, fruit, for instance, or or vegetables that taste, or animals that taste really boring. So we sort of like removed a lot of the possible flavor in our food by removing all the stress factors like from an environment or just all the, removing all the complexity from the like environment. So like what's big for us is like integration of animals into all the systems is like huge, you know? And so we, we work with pigs and cows and ducks and geese and chickens in the vineyard, but also in the garden, like settings and in, in, in the orchards. And then there's not only no mowing, which I don't think is like really like that big deal, but more, or sorry, not only no tilling, but there's no mow, which is I think the more significant like sort of thing. And so allowing all the plants to go to flower and then to seed and complete their whole life cycle, but also allows a lot of perennial plants to exist in the vineyard that wouldn't exist otherwise. So like wild fennel and lupins, but also little oak trees and hazels and things that would get normally mowed, like cut down. But also you have all these plants that are then providing an important like insectary function, like, you know, for insects or structural, like important for like insect populations. So you have something at Queen Anne's Lace and then it like dries out. That is like this really amazing like architectural form that provides homes um, for a lot of creatures that otherwise wouldn't have. They don't have niches. Like, I mean, so much of it is like about providing these like niches, like for like different life forms, and also like sort of food and fuel and and so trying to think about like what sort of vineyard is a nice home for the kind of microbial populations that you may be good for your like ferment later on or for the kind of birds that you want to have around your property or other sorts of things. So remote, like, so a lot of it is again, like it's not direct, but we do a lot of things to like encourage stuff. And so we'll put down, like right now I'm putting it out, like um, you can sort of see it from here, like a lot of like little wood chip piles in the vineyard mm -hmm. and the mushrooms will then like in, a mycorrhizal connection will definitely just will just sort of develop from there, like like by providing a food source for these organisms, kind of like one way of sort of inviting them in to kind of like colonize things, or by you know we use it's a we have a probiotic spay program, so there's um, no sulfur, no mineral oil, no copper, none of these things are normally used in a vineyard spray program and it's and, to, and we're not trying to eliminate or anesthetize the canopy from fungal things and we're really just trying to encourage like more competition to spray things um, like fish meal and kelp not because not for like nutrients sort of things but because they're food um and neem, for different, neem oil yeah neem well. oil Cinnamon. same thing yeah because they especially like the oils like in the neem oils it's organic um cold pressed neem the that's what a bunch of these microorganisms need to like thrive and spread and to like, you know, kind of live. But so all that stuff is happening on, you know. Maybe so we could look at our health, so like, our health system yeah. and our reliance on antibiotics and kind of draw a similar parallel. Can we yeah. not? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, there's tons of like parallels with what we're discovering, like about human health and like all sorts of other things. I guess why and, you... and a lot of it's about beauty too. Like is about there's I think what's interesting about like all this stuff is that for all these like different like systems of farming, there is a new kind of beauty that emerges like mm -hmm. around those things. And there's also like a um new flavors and like new tastes. You know, so one of the things I was like really excited about is that like in a perennial based like food system, which has like tons of advantages for the health of our environment, the health of our planet, for the efficiency of like our food system, 
it requires a different like culture. Like essentially it requires a different cuisine, a different way of eating that has all these like health. Like, so the, it's just this, it's this really interesting matrix related to, to beauty and health and flavor and culture. Um, and sort of getting back to the cultural thing that I was talking about earlier, it's like, it's lifestyle that drives all these, you know, all these sort of things. And How you go about your life, what you introduced in it's your the body. Only way you, can, you can't change right. things by just saying, I want to remove this or I want to add that. You have to change things at, like, at the very core of what your daily routines are. And so the only chance to, the biggest way to be able to like make those changes and make that input is to fall in love with the outcome, is to fall in love with what that life feels like, what that life tastes like, with what those human interactions are like in that life. And then it becomes easy, you know? Like then you want it. But if you just think about it as, oh, this is bad, so I'm not gonna do it, you're not gonna get anywhere. Do you think it's it's easier said than done when someone's trying to establish a vineyard, especially one where Vitis vinifera is grafted onto Lambrusca and you're already in a weaker scenario, let's say, than maybe what you walked into? I, th- I think that a lot of the trials and tribulations that lead to, like, say, our, like, sort of current, like, viticultural standards for establishing a vineyard, I don't think they really exist. Mm. I think they're like completely like I think that like to look at plants as having strictly like a competitive relationship with one another is a super simplistic and um, an ultimately false way of understanding, you know. And that's what's sort of driving like all the tilling, ripping, like. And so, if you can change your mindset to one in which you're trying to kind of harness plants' ability to like sort of enable each other, right? then you'll get really like different, really different outcomes. But also a lot of it ends up being about like care and energy. And I think that a lot of the assumptions that underlie our, like our current viewpoint agriculture are based on not having human beings involved with it. So they're based on um, mechanized and chemical driven sort of efficiencies that remove humans from the landscape. And so these alternatives are possible that are incredibly like beautiful, but they require more humans helping like in the field, like in the world. And I think we've been also taught to like think of that as a bad thing, that humans are like a negative force on the environment when in fact they can be a positive force, but also that we should want more people in the field and we should want to pay those people more. You sort of have to decide what you actually want the world to look like and then work on modeling and creating realities that sort of conform to that. Have you seen drastic changes in the landscape here? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally, it's a very different place. Not to say like it was organically farmed before us and it was was a no-till system before us. It was just mowed, but there just wasn't much life or diversity. And so it was basically just vines and grass and no animals. And so I think that ultimately this is more dynamic, resilient, and like beautiful, like sort of system. And I don't think the wines that we make today are really possible in, in the old system, but it's hard for me to say more than Why that. Why do people think they need to mow? Oh, it's aesthetic. I think it's a lot, like most of these things are largely related to people's concept of beauty and what they think is beautiful. Um, you don't think that that maybe in more human environments, like ah, I mean yeah. that's fair. I mean I think it's fair to say that like when I'm talking about this, we're talking about West Coast. We're talking about a West Coast like sort of idiom. Not that I think it's necessary to mow in a bunch of these European cities, but I think it's you would there we would do it differently. There are other there would be other challenges. I mean this is actually the bigger elephant in the room, is the in general on both parts of the East Coast of the U.S and in fine wine regions in Europe, being organic is harder and being, you know, having a no kind of mo kind of situation would be, you know, quite a bit more challenging. It just sort of begs the question, like, 
Like that in the Napa Valley, every producer is not organic. It's sort of like the most mind-blowing thing in the world. It's like one of the easiest places you could possibly farm and that those people that you think you need a clean, cultivated, like sprayed vineyard in the Napa Valley is like completely absurd. But I think it's because no one there is really asking the questions of like, like, why are we doing this? And what would it look like if we didn't? Because you have a lot of brave people in Europe doing um, some really heroic farming and some super like challenging situations. And I look at that and then I look at people in these just insanely plush situations that are like afraid of doing whatever. And so for the people who, so let's, let's take mowing out for a second, but why, why do people feel like they, they need to till under vine? It's like looking at the soil through human eyes instead of the eyes of like bugs and microbes and plants. And so like we see that like soil that is sort of like settled and densely packed. And we think of that as being like sort of like this impenetrable medium. But for a daikon radish or a worm or fungal hyphae, like whatever, like they'll move like right through that. But I think we sort of need, have this need for it to be like sort of like, you know, pillowy and fluffed up and like, um, and, and just because we can't imagine that world that we can't see. And then it's partially also this like sort of what we were talking about earlier, this like, um, this idea that plants are, are competitive versus like supporting kind of one another. But also it's this sort of idea also about like yield, like where, where we sort of want to hold on to this sort of absurd yield. Instead of looking at yield in the system as like, like the health of the system being part of the total yield and sort of giving up a certain amount of crop load or like whatever to other parts of like the environment, we want to just, we basically take this larger yield of less intense, less impactful berries rather than taking a smaller yield in an environment that would give more to the whole environment. Right. Um, I think that's also like happening to like a certain to like a certain degree. So um, this this idea of containment versus control, and in, in what ways do you contain the vineyard? In I mean, you can't just completely let it go. Totally, yeah. No, so right. I mean, we definitely like, you know, we make a single cut at pruning, and the vineyard was planted on trellis, and we everything about how we how the vineyard is planted is not how we would plant it, but it's a it's a resource, and we don't want to squander it, and and definitely believe in like in trying to find vineyards to rehabilitate rather than planting new vineyards. So trying whenever possible to go into situations where things are already been cultivated rather than going into a situation where it's sort of wilderness and turning that into a cultivated situation. And we spray, and we spray this. It is this like sort of probiotic program, but it is something that we're doing to like to sort of push just sort of exert some sort of control on the way that sort of fungal activity manifests itself in the in the canopy. Do you use a roller crimper? We don't use a roller crimper. Okay, so how important do animals become at this point for you? In- animals are super important. I mean, the, and then sort of the, I mean, essentially the cows keep the grasses down and the pigs. Pigs are also eating voles and doing like some other like really cool like sort of functional things. That's That was my next question because voles, Unlike gophers, they hide in the tall grass and that particular problem. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we don't have a bull issue. And I think, I suspect that's partly related mm-hmm. to pigs. Um, but the, the cows basically keep the grasses down going into the, um, going into the summer. And then by the time the cows come out of the vineyard, which is usually around in May, we don't see a lot of rain again, you know, and so we don't get sort of like strong second push of grasses. But we get other plants that are kind of growing and we actually want plants at different heights. And so we have, you know, fennel and lupin and vetch and like other things that kind of grows up into the canopy and that's fine. Can you kind of walk me through a season of when the animals are rotated in and out? Because I've seen pigs here in the spring, I'm pretty sure. At the same time as the cows... Yeah, the pigs and cows and chickens are all in the vineyard right now. The cows will come out at bud break, but the pigs will stay in until um, maybe June or so. Like, and the and the chickens also will stay in like kind of longer. And then and then they're out, and they're sort of the pigs go to the orchard, or you know we have other pasture, and they start rotating through pasture. 
Um, and then we'll put them back in post-harvest. And what is the significance of each animal in terms of its difference of function? I mean, it's like pretty much like old McDonald had a farm, right? <laughs> That's fair. Uh, no, but it's amazing, which is actually really amazing. Like all these animals have this, have these like really strong attributes and like sort of habits. And, you know, and so the, you know, the chickens are constantly like pecking at like different insects that you can't see. And they're constantly like scratching and moving around like sort of like dead material and other things that have sort of been left on the ground. And that like has a particular function. The pigs are of course doing this sort of like you know, shallow kind of like rooting activity. And like I said, we see them eating bulls. Um, they eat everything. You know, so they're sort of omnivores or kind of like whatever. And then they make like, you know, little wallows and depressions. So that was like one of the other things is like this having this land that has a lot of changing contours. And so, and all those contours are sort of, they're events. So like fertility events. There are all these like different fertility events, which animals pooping, like kind of all this stuff. But also like if a cow puts its hoof print in the soil and as water and sediment flow over the soil, they're impressed with like normally be erosion. That stuff will be caught in that hoof print. And that hoof print then becomes a place where a new seed could come up. It's just sort of creating these like sort of possible events. And so the pigs are constantly kind of like recontouring the land so the land is not even. It's actually kind of rough and like moving around. And then that has other like sort of like, you know, like unintended benefits like that you can't drive like particularly that fast through the vineyard mm. with RTV, which, you know, makes for more careful spraying or like, I mean, there's all kind you know, there's all sorts of like little... Benefits that you don't even consider until you do it. Benefits. But for us, we never look at like, we never look at direct impacts or like direct benefits. We're really just trying to work on a system that feels a certain way and sort of trust that if it feels right, then the overall outcome will sort of be good. Um, so it's never like, like this thing is doing this so it results in this. Like, that's just never how we do stuff. I was talking to China today about um, seeding and you seed in the, in the fall and the spring. And yeah, what, multiple times, many, as many times as possible. It's like, it's a mix of like, I feel like 40 different things and, and always a mix of things, some things that are like leguminous plants, some things that will flower at different times, some things that um, you know, have deep tap roots, some things that are shallow rooting, some they plants are occupying like different heights, but also some things that will also be very beautiful or other things that are like tillage or fertility oriented. But then we'll also like also see a lot of spent like garden seeds out there and sort of stuff. And it's really this idea is just talking about like feeding the seed bank. So we seed directly into just whatever's growing out there. And this you're idea- You're not that, careful about where no, you're, no, no, no. you're laying this out. And then, and the idea is just that when the conditions are right, then there'll be a chance for some of those things to like come up. But every year, like what comes up in the vineyard changes based on the conditions of the year. So some year you might have, I guess you read a ton of yarrow. Other years, it could be like a lot of wild lettuce or a lot of chicken. It really like, um, and so the seeds are sort of just there dormant. And then depending on the conditions, certain things will fire. We'll often notice that it's you, sometimes years after we seeded certain things that all of a sudden you'll see them. How much do you pay the animals, by the way, for vineyard labor? Is there a system? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, they have a good life. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, that concludes today's episode. If you liked it, please hit the subscribe button. And if you have any comments, we welcome those as well. Thank you so much. We'll be back again soon. <laughs>